Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hey, hey, or should I say bonjour, parce que je suis en France. Yep, I'm in uh, Cannes, actually, for just for the evening. I've got a little gig here tonight. I was in Mexico on Monday, and then I got home on Tuesday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at home. Today, I flew this morning to Cannes, and back home tomorrow, and then I've got another gig tomorrow afternoon in London, and I'm going to take the kids to that, because it'd be really cute. Um... I'm doing a festival called Foodies Festival, which I do a lot of in the summer, so that'd be nice. Um, and this is, yeah, a little slice of um, a slice of glamour. It's actually really ridiculous in Cannes. I don't know much about the whole festival that goes on here, Cannes Film, Cannes Film Festival, but I know it's been really busy here. Loads of people descended on Cannes, and our hotel seems to be sort of in the centre of everything, so when we got here, there was like red carpet and paparazzi and all this. Not interested in us, obviously. But it was all like one of those situations where you walk in and you think, oh, this is tiring, without even being my scene. I don't even know what's going on I'm knackered. Um, but the sky is blue, just had a nice lunch. Got a little bit of time before I sing later, so I'm going to go for a little walk with Richard. I'm looking out the window as I talk to you and the sea is twinkling at me. That's so nice. It looks beautiful. Um, it's like kind of slipping into a... Another world. I mean, it's not like normal life in Cannes, that's for sure. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the rest of the week's been really lovely. It's been quite busy. I've been a bit jet-lagged. wasn't really expecting it. I was only in Mexico for three nights, but I keep falling asleep at like 1.30 or 2 in the morning. Last night I went to sleep at 3. Then up again at half 6. It's not enough sleep, I tell you. 
Um, I had an amazing time in Mexico, such a brilliant trip and loved Guadalajara and then got back to delivery of my new album, Hannah, so I finally met it in person, been signing lots of albums, so if you're one of the people who's ordered a signed one, well thank you very much, I've done it myself and it's on its way to you. And yeah, feeling just generally pretty excited about things, done lots of interviews this week to talk about the record and without sounding too Enid Blyton about the whole thing, I'm always very happy to do all of that stuff because I feel like it's such a lovely thing that people are still interested in what I'm up to. You know, there's loads of musicians out there. No one has to give me a time of day, so I do appreciate that. And it's been nice. I'm excited about the record, feeling good about the world. And uh, for today's podcast chat... I'm actually taking us back in time because I spoke to Emma Dabari back in March. I visited Margate for the first time to go and see Emma, but it wasn't the first time I'd met her. I sat sat next to her at a lunch I went to not so long ago, and I really liked her. I found her funny and smart and interesting and all the good stuff. Um, She speaks very passionately about race. She grew up as a um, mixed-race girl in Dublin. We're the same age, so all through the 80s, born in 79, I believe. Um, She now has two little boys, lives in Margate, but she felt very other when she was growing up. She she really liked... So she had a childhood partly in um, Dublin and partly in America. But when she was in Dublin, I feel like that's the place she would call home. And she loves being Irish, but she always felt very other. Um, which is interesting because I've never had to think like that really. I've never felt outside of, I don't know, how other people... I always saw versions of myself reflected at me as a child and it must be very different if you don't. And it's prompted her to, to, to study and become an academic of the development of race and the politics that surround it. So lots of interesting stuff. She's written a couple of really interesting books um, Don't Touch My Hair and What White People Can Do Next. Um, So she's, you know, she really knows her stuff. Properly smart woman and interesting. And we had a great chat. It was the day after Mother's Day. I hope she won't mind me saying she was a little bit hungover in a good way. But she did say that at the time to me. So there was a couple of bits where I think both of us, I mean, I'm always like this anyway. But both of us kind of trying to find the right word. But she's way more articulate than me. So you don't need to worry about that. And, yeah, it was lovely. And after we finished chatting, we went around an art gallery because one of our friends has an art gallery and then we wandered around Margate. It's very lovely and I hope to go back. All right, I'm going to leave you in the safe hands of the chat with Emma and I and I'll see you next time. Well, it's lovely to come to Margate today and find you here, Emma. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that spring seems to be kind of like asserting itself vaguely-ish. Mm, I always remember with March, they say, in like a lion, out like a lamb, in terms oh, of yeah. the weather. And I I think of it every year with March because it always starts and you're like, why am I still needing gloves and hat? Mm-hmm. And then by the end, you've got buds, the days will be lighter, weather a bit warm, a bit milder. I've seen some magnolia. Beautiful. It's on its way. Yeah. Do you, I've actually already read that you're quite, into seasons you like sort of seeing the chair how are you with the transitional bits um yeah I think I'm I think I'm okay with them (laughs) um 
I've actually like, I feel like I've just, I've really made my peace with like living in this kind of climate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I used to be like really resistant to being from somewhere that was, um, come from Ireland. Um, so obviously the climate is similar to here, mm. but it's damper and wetter. And I used to be really like resistant to that being my reality, but I've really <laughs> like um, made my peace with it. Mm-hmm. And it's allowed me to actually like really appreciate the weather in this part of the world. Um, yeah, I have a completely different relationship with it than I did than I did growing up. There are still like some aberrations though, because I love that um, phrase that you, um, that saying that you just said, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Mm-hmm. But my birthday is like at the end of March. And um, I remember about five years ago, heavy, heavy snow oh, yeah. on my birthday. Mm. I was just like, what is happening? This this is too much. I haven't made yeah, my piece like That's taken Ricky really, isn't yeah. it? I know, yeah. Well, my birthday's in early April, so mm-hmm. I share all of that with you. And I know that my husband's birthday, the 6th of April, we once had one of those crazy days where it snowed in the morning and then we had a barbecue in the afternoon because <laughs> the weather just sort of lifted. So I think, yeah, the weather can still throw you. But I have a, a really good friend who moved to Brighton mm-hmm. and he said, when you live near the sea... He said, you don't really have like good days and bad days. Every day is just sort of weather. And it made him really enjoy that sort of spectacle. And now you find yourself by the sea. And I wonder if maybe that helps. Yeah, I don't know if I have that same, if I have that same experience. Because I feel like, like last summer here, I mean, last summer was just really, really hot across the Mm. board. But down here on the beach, it was like, it was insane. Like mm. I would, you know, post a photograph and people would be like, and then I'd be like in London the next day and people would be like, oh, but I thought you were like abroad. And I was like, no, that's like literally just like the Kent coast. Wow. Like there were some like seriously, seriously hot days. And yeah, it's true. And are you still swimming in the sea every day? Not every day. Okay. Um, but still regularly. That's yeah. Good. And still, um, and I'm, I'm quite like... Um, Discipline is not the right word because I don't see it as um, something kind of punitive. Um, <laughs> but I realise that if I don't, um, like, if I don't get in, if because of my schedule, like, I can't get into the sea, like, yeah. regularly enough, I will make sure that I have, like, ice cold showers just to, like, keep me, just to keep me, like, kind of used keep to... Keep that muscle flex. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it doesn't, so it doesn't become something that I start to, like, be fearful of. You know. That's actually pretty smart because I can imagine being warm is always quite nice. <laughs> Don't get too comfortable with that. <laughs> I've had a few experiences like since I've started the cold water immersion where I've been somewhere and I can't access like hot water. So this mm. is a freezing cold shower. And in the past, I would have been like, oh man, oh, I can't, ah. But now I'm just like, oh, this is grand. Like mm-hmm. I can totally hack this. Yeah. Ice cold water, bring it on. I'm very impressed, by the way. It's so far away from me, that that ability. So I'm very impressed. It's so far away from me, (laughs) traditionally. And I feel like if I can do it, like literally, like if I can be in cold water like that, anybody can be. Mm -hmm. Anyone. Okay. Yeah. I know. Every time I hear this, I'm like, one day, one day, I'll be inspired to do it. I kind of want to see what it's like. I'm actually a bit tempted. Did you see that program, the Wim Hof TV show where he had celebrities? And he took, it's called Freeze the Fear. Mm-mm. he took them and did like ice plunges and things I actually was like I would actually be interested in doing that just because I don't like it but I could see that there's almost like a barrier with it and I was yeah. like maybe this would be quite good for me I think it would be really good for mm. you I did Wim Hof about um I did a workshop like about a month ago okay um in in Cornwall um in this place called Three Mile Beach 
Um, and it was, it was like, I, I did kind of like a condensed workshop. It was just in one day. Cause mm-hmm. I think usually they're um, maybe over a weekend or maybe a longer day. Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was incredible. Like the breathwork stuff isn't um, something that I normally like incorporate into like getting into the cold water, but I was kind of like introduced to all of that. I think a lot of the breathwork is used um, in order to like mentally prepare yourself yeah. for immersion in the, in the icy water. Um, and I think one of the things that I was, um, I think something that I was doing though, kind of that I just felt, um, what's the word? Um, I kind of inherently understood was something that I needed to do to be able to get into the cold water was something that the breath work um, kind of helps you, not shortcut, but helps you get to another way, was I realised that I had to be like quite calm with it. Mm. Like when I first started preparing myself for getting into the sea, um, I started, it was before we'd moved, and I started just with cold showers. And the first week of those were like really like really painful I actually mm-hmm. felt like my skin was being like flayed or like burned <laughs> and I'd be like screaming and I'd be like you know um really tensing my body yeah um but after a week or so I realized that really like that that makes it a lot worse so actually if you don't tense you don't scream you just like let it happen you're like oh a lot of the discomfort is actually coming from the way I'm like reacting to this. And I have like a lot more mental control over how it feels if I don't, if I don't, if I'm not so reactive. If I just let it happen and be like, you know, this isn't that bad. Yeah. Actually, it's kind of good. Oh, wow, it's kind of amazing. And then like, I don't know, it's just like a, a different, a different headspace. And but there's a lot about that. Things. And that's like a metaphor for a lot of things, isn't it? With, you know, how it, how you respond to stuff is, it's so much part of your, for want of a better phrase, journey through it. Mm-hmm, completely. <laughs> and um, sometimes you need to remind yourself of those things because turning on your back and just sort of acceptance and letting it happen and acknowledging, but also not like tensing and panicking is part of that whole thing. So I think there's a lot of really positive stuff in that just across the board generally. And before we started recording, you were saying you've had a really crazy year. So what else are you up to at the moment? What's happening with you in terms of work at the moment? Yeah, so um, I'm working on a, a book that, as of now, shall not be named. And this is your third book? <laughs> this is my third book, and Does it get yeah. easier, the, the, the book writing process? Or does it, is it always the same sort of feeling when you're sitting down to write? I think my circumstances have been really different with each book. So... I don't know that it's easier. Um, mm, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's different though. But I don't know if it's easier. I definitely find writing, um, people are like, oh, do you find it like a huge relief? Do you find it like really therapeutic? And I'm like, no, <laughs> not, no. not in the process. In the process, I actually find it quite, um, I find it, I feel like quite under quite a lot of pressure and I, I, I feel um, like I'm kind of resting like this stuff from um, like within me and then trying to like put a aesthetic or whatever kind of form on it. So mm. that it actually feels like really labor intensive. And I'm surprised hard. anyone would think you would find it like a release because 
the topics and the way that you're, as you say, structuring what you're talking about is weighty stuff. And so, I mean, obviously I'll talk about it in the introduction, but so your two books, one of which is very close to us, Don't Touch My Hair, um, and What White People Can Do Next, mm -hmm. they're both, they centre on the fact that you've studied black history degree, PhD. What you're talking about is huge, big stuff. And I did think <clears throat> that must be, yeah, I thought that must be a big pressure, but also it's, it's all pretty serious, pretty deep, pretty huge. And, do, you know, does the things like the cold swimming and all this, does that help just give a place for you to go that's just kind of a release from actually the the significance of what you're actually, the message you're actually imparting? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely. Um, I've been um, kind of committed to doing more like embodied practices, like more like physical practices, because I think um, I have historically like had a huge tendency to um, be like very like analytical, like and very like intellectual, like, like very much in my head. And um, trying, I guess, to process things that I find, um, that I find, I feel like the word traumatic and trauma is overused, but that, are, that, are, that, are, that are traumatic. Trying to like, you know, approach them analytically and kind of feeling that if I can understand the mechanics of certain things, then I have kind of like agency or like power over them. Um, but I feel that it's also, it, it can just be, it's also really important that you express things or that you kind of remove or that I remove the pressure from myself to to always be in that really kind of like analytical space and do things that actually move emotions through my body in like more physical, in more physical ways. So this cold water swimming would definitely be part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, I'm also writing a play. Um, which opens, it's with like an Irish theatre company called This Is Pop Baby. And it opens in Dublin in October. And then we'll be coming to London to the Soho Theatre in like October of next year, October 2024. Mm -hmm. But with where we're at um, in the process of writing that now is, um, well, actually, so this first book, Don't Touch My Hair, um, the director of the um, theatre company is somebody that I grew up with. And she read this book and she was just like, oh, you know, a lot of the biograph biographical material in there would could be adapted quite interestingly to, to the stage, to theatre. And then also because she knows me outside of my writing, she was just saying it was really interesting to um, to know kind of deeper context of a lot of like what I'm saying in the book because she's yeah. known me for for so long. Um, so anyway, we're writing, yeah, we're, I'm writing this play that has aspects of this book and the, the second book as well and various other, um, various other material in it. But the draft that we're on now that both the director and the dramaturge that we're working with is like, okay, Emma, like no more theory. So they've given me, so I'm talking about my life, but then I'm like, you know, also like having all of this like theory and like analysis. And so that is going to be in there, but it's going to have to be like communicated in some other way. So like the next um, exercise they've given me is to just tell like six stories from my life. Right. But to just speak them, not to write them. 
speak them, record them, not to write them and not to like analyze them and not to give these kind of like theoretical um, kind of like underpinnings that say, well, this this kind of interpretation these kind of interpretations to literally just like tell the fucking story so <laughs> I find stuff like that yeah like you know quite challenging so that's yeah that's well, what I'm at now that's making me think because when you were talking at first I was thinking actually there'll be a lot of people who've got gone very far down an academic path and really know their stuff but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a life they feel they live and it's mm-hmm. connected so intrinsically mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes when you've been able to intellectualize and theorize and look back through, you know, and put things into context, maybe that's also been a little bit of armor that you've been able to put on and now you're being asked to actually take that off and just be you and yeah. talk more <clears throat> from your own experience. Mm-hmm. That's quite a big deal, isn't it? Yeah. You have to do that. I feel like that is, that is what's going on. But again, that's something that another reason I was kind of resistant to doing that is I think like for women... Um, regardless of kind of like what their expertise is or what their profession is, they are often assumed to reveal like a lot about their their personal life yes. and their biography in a way that men, it's not, that is not expected of men in the same way. God, that's so true. So that also <clears throat> kind of like pissed me off. Yeah, I totally get like, that. No. <laughs> You're like, well, why does it have to have that strand to it? Why can we not just listen to all this knowledge I have and the facts and what speaks for itself and the system we found, uh, you know, existing? Why does it have to come back to me? Why does it have to have that motivation? But I suppose the way to feel better about that is to, what I would say is as someone listening and receiving the information is that for me, all my favourite communicators and teachers are people where at the heart of it there's something about them that has that that angle where it comes from another place because actually those that's what actually that human connection in the end ultimately makes that messages and the information so much easier to actually receive and so that 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 empathy Mm -hmm. to engage with to engage with for it to be relatable and also for it to be narrative driven and like more compelling as well like I totally get that I feel like I'm just kind of and I do have like a lot of my life in like kind of most of the work that I do Mm. but I also feel like I can be like quite a contrary person and so (laughs) if there's just like an expectation that because I'm xyz I will do this I always want to do like the opposite yeah (laughs) I know I get that I, do I, I override that. that, but I'm just saying it's there. I think what you probably need to do is have it in your head for a bit and then come up with the way that you act. Now it's yours, you own it. Yeah. I'm doing it because this is the times I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah. I get that. But that's also like you've obviously always had a questioning mind. You're inquisitive and questioning and then having to conform to an expectation is just not, that wouldn't have led you to where you're at, would it? Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way of looking at it. It's a nice thing. So if we talk for a little minute about motherhood, um, what was happening when you had your first baby in terms of what you're up to with your work? So I, I was in the first year of my PhD um, and I had done the first term of it and then I realised that I was pregnant. So I finished that year, I did the first year, Um, I had like insane, insane nausea, not for the whole pregnancy, actually just for the first three months, but it was like completely debilitating. Like it was just like, 
like I was so sick. I actually am somebody that's quite prone to nausea and this mm. was just like exacerbated to like, it was like, in, yeah, quite debilitating. But um, I, yeah, I did the first year pregnant and then I was like, oh, I'll take like three months off and then I'll come back to it. And then after three months, I was just like, like I breastfed like my son for like two years. So after three months, I was like, God, like he's still like completely like reliant on like breast milk. There's no way I can like go back to like classes, like classes and studying. I was like, I'll do six months. And then at six months, I was like, no, there's no way like, <laughs> no. So I did a year. So I ended up like taking like a year off of the PhD when I'd only done a year of it. Um but it was at that time that I started, um, like, blogging. That sounds, like, so archaic now. Um, <laughs> I started, like, I guess because a lot of my PhD was also, like, based on... I was coming from a place of it not just being scholarship, but also trying to, like, kind of make sense of, like, the structures that have formed, like, my actual life. Yeah. Um, so it was quite personal. I guess there was lots of stuff I was writing that wasn't suitable for the genre of writing that is my that, that is sociology. So I started kind of um, writing essays that I would put up like on Tumblr um, and started kind of building like a readership like through, yeah. through that. And I went back to the PhD but kept kind of doing all that, which was like how I got a literary agent and like how the books kind of started. But yeah, that was the kind of landscape of... Um, what was going on when I was yeah pregnant with my with my first son? I'm still doing the PhD. This is the final year I have to finish by. Um, That's pretty impressive. You kept it going, yeah, because um, I was really I don't know. Like so many people now, kind of like by halfway through it, were like, "Why the hell are you doing this? Like you're like successful. Like you don't need you don't need the PhD." But I feel like because I committed like so much time and energy into it that it's like important for me to like get the doctorate mm -hmm. and also there aren't that many black professors they're not that they're not enough black knowledge creators and like academics in this country um so yeah I just feel I feel like it's an important thing mm. to do Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And do you think the, the process of becoming a mum made you think a lot more about some of the stuff you ended up writing about or were the strands of your books going to happen anyway, do you think? No, oh, of the books, um, no, I think, I don't see the books as necessarily related. Okay, actually, one thing that I think motherhood did give me, which would be relevant to the books, was, like, it actually helped me, like, focus and have, like, far more clarity in, like, what I wanted to, and what I wanted to kind of, like, achieve, I guess, and, like, do, do with my life. Well, because I wondered yeah. if, you know, you're thinking a little bit about <clears throat> the next generation, really. Because sometimes when you come to have a child, it makes you think a little bit more about legacy, but also about the world that they're growing up in. So if you've got like a little fire in your belly of something to communicate, it can help focus that sometimes. Or give, give a little bit more of a kick to it. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know, I don't know if I was thinking so much. I actually feel like I was kind of thinking... Even before I had children, I feel like I was thinking about not necessarily legacy, but like what I could do to kind of make things different, contribute yeah. to making things different to the way that they are, you know? I feel like when I um when I see <clears throat> when I hear about um I guess young people who have a similar background to mine specifically like in Ireland and they're having like similar or even like more extreme experiences I feel like very kind of I don't know like I feel like really not protective but I feel like this like compulsion you know to like do all that I can to kind of like contribute to like shifting attitudes but it's also not even so specific as this idea of like only being um concerned or moved by the experiences of people who have exactly the same identity mm. as you is not really is not really how I, I feel. I feel like one's own experiences of discrimination or whatever forms of, I guess, oppression or discrimination, those 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 kind of things, um, should also make you like more sensitive to groups who are experiencing um discrimination or oppression or exploitation even if they don't share like your particular identity yeah, that makes sense I feel like it should kind of yeah make you more open to understanding um yeah how 
question feels. Yeah, I mean, I think I really love the way you speak about your, your topics as well, because sometimes you've described talking about race as quite icky. And I think that's such a brilliant word because I really, I think there's, sometimes it can feel like there's all these like landmines and everybody's got these good intentions. But I think your book, your second book and the articles you've written around it, for me, really... I just feel like, why is it not more widely known that race is only such a, a relatively modern concept? Mm -hmm. 1661. I mean, I know it's not like super recent, but it's not that long ago. It's really. pretty recent. I think it is pretty recent. Mm -hmm. And I think we're pretty much the same age. I'm 1979. Are you 1979? So we're the same age. And I think it's really interesting, all the conversations that have got on. I mean, I do... I, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I do feel like the Black Lives Matter movement has actually made a shift. I do feel like something is different subsequent to that in how the conversations are going and, and just the fact that they're happening so much more frequently. Mm -hmm. But what I found, for me, a personal sort of tricky thing was that when I was little, when we were little... I felt like the emphasis was always on trying to not see skin colour and not see difference and all be kind of, we are all together as one and you can't see difference and don't, don't recognise it. And then it's subsequently now, it's much more important to actually no, recognise it. Recognise that means a different thing, different... Mm -hmm. Do you feel like things are getting better? Do you feel like life is... <clears throat> the, the conversations are going in the right direction? It's, it's clunky, isn't it, all this stuff? Because I suppose there's so much of these things are kind of steps forward and steps back. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's lots in what I know, said. sorry, there's no, so no, much no, going not, on not there. At but all, not at all. I think the, fir the, the first thing of, like, so when I was growing up, I found that narrative of, like, we don't see colour actually, like, quite um, oppressive because it was explicitly apparent to me that everybody very much did see colour and did see race. Absolutely. But then one was kind of not able to, if you addressed it, there was a kind of a narrative of, well, we don't see colour. So there was actually like no scope to really um, address. There was, it was like, it, I felt like it was like this mechanism to actually kind of like shut you down if you tried to challenge what you were, what you were, what you were clearly <laughs> experiencing. Um, so I've never really been a proponent of that mentality in a context where it's more like lips it's 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 more like it's it's like more lip service i didn't see it actually like um manifesting itself in the way society was structured or in how people treated you or how people behaved today however though one of the things i write about in what white people can do next is when these conversations about race and specifically like about kind of black and white were, you know, there was so much attention being given to this topic. That seemed to me like a key moment where we would kind of uh, mainstream the knowledge that you kind of hear race as a so you, you did hear race as a social construct. Um, it, like, I think that kind of phrase was something that became like popularized on social media but it was kind of a bit like an empty mantra that people would say but they don't really like know what it means mm -hmm. and I thought like with so much attention um 
on race and race being like so kind of high on the agenda, it was like a really like, uh, it was a moment where that invention of the idea of a white race and a black race, the kind of context for this phrase, race as a social construct, could be mainstreamed. And rather than people um, reaffirming the concept of a white race and a black race as being these immutable categories, understanding that they were categories that were invented during the transatlantic slave trade Mm. for really nefarious purposes. They were like, the concept of a black race and a white race was invented in order to justify racism. So a concept that is invented to justify racism, digging more, becoming more entrenched in it as a natural way of just being is highly unlikely to be um, a powerful tool of anti-racism because it's its very invention is to justify racism. The necessity of justifying racism was born from the fact that all of these um, African people were being like, were, were being kidnapped from like Western Central Africa and their labor was being exploited on these plantations and the colonies, the English and other European colonies in the Americas and Caribbean were becoming you know, like obscenely wealthy because of this unremunerated labor. But also Europe was also becoming incredibly wealthy from, from, from all of this. So the economies were becoming increasingly dependent on this labor. Um, but it, obviously it was like grotesque in order to justify it, in order to justify the use of um, people of African descent in this way. Um, this idea of a of a black race as inferior um, was was uh, was introduced and then uh, introduced through various legislation and then um, spread throughout culture through various means. Actually, I was just looking at a um, a game from the sixteen hundreds, <coughs> from the seventeenth century, mm-hmm. from the. Um, Mid-1600s, when the um, French are going to colonise Canada. And the game is, um, I can't remember the name of it. I only saw it for the first time recently. It's like a board game. Mm -hmm. So this board game was played in like homes, like it was really popular in France. And it was basically teaching the kind of hierarchy of race French European French men were like the the pinnacle. So when top you get to the top of the board, yeah, it's you're French a French man. man. <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence! But the bottom was actually the native people oh of um, of uh, of Canada, um, of that part of of North America um, at that historical moment, and that was part of it, this was part of normalizing. Yeah. Uh, killing them and stealing stealing yeah. their lands, but popularized through like a family game. So I guess you look at like media and like all of these different um, kind of channels through which um, ideas about like racial hierarchies are um, are disseminated and yeah. and kind of and kind of entrenched. But yeah, I thought that the moment um, 
with uh, the murder of George Floyd and the um, huge like uprising and Black Lives Matter was the, the moment where we could, you know, actually talk about these histories. Um, that's one of the reasons that um, I wrote what white people could do next. I just thought that historical context is so important, but was completely absent from most of the discourse that I was seeing, yeah. which was instead focusing on allyship. And it was allyship that I was saying, I think is is quite an icky. A lot of the discourse around allyship makes me feel like really uncomfortable and like yeah. kind of really patronizing both to me and to like, the potential ally. No, I completely get that. And I think, I suppose, with that with that conversation around racism, what people are imagining is about st- just stopping having any predisposed ideas about someone based on the colour of their skin and making sure, obviously, that there's also representation across the board. But what people aren't really thinking about is, as you say, the historical significance of what racism was what the, what its roots were and how it was became intrinsic to the the whole way the economy worked everything across the board it became like completely how things had to be you had to have that stay in your lane of everything to stop to stop any um coalitions mm-hmm. between people who actually are in similar situations but don't aren't un, 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 encouraged to see each other as as peers, yeah. to all of it. It goes through throughout the whole system. So that's really key and actually something, yeah, I'm glad that you, you brought that up because that's something that I'd like to just, I guess, like talk about for a moment. One of the other um, things that was happening um, in, you mentioned like 1661, and that's when these um, slave codes were drawn up in a, the English colony of Barbados. Um, so the slave codes um, kind of introduced the idea of, you know, um, black race, although the language used at the time wasn't black, it was a different word. Um, But basically it kind of legislated um, that people who were of African descent would be denied like any access to protection under the law and that Europeans, people who were becoming racialized as white, um, would have um, <clears throat> essentially like the power of life and death over this 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 other race. But one of the things that motivated that law was like this series of uprisings that had happened um, where like kidnapped Africans and like indentured Irish who were like working together on the plantations. Um, were also seeing that we're seeing the English landlords as like a common enemy. And those two groups combined, there were like much more of them than there were of the small kind of elite landlord class. Mm-hmm. And so they were coming together and like attacking the um, attacking the English and some Scottish landlords as well. One of the things that I found really fascinating about that that period was the Scottish and the Irish and the English that were all in Barbados wouldn't have had any sense of themselves as having a shared identity as white people. They were from very different classes and they were also from very different cultures. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of like, they were often like structurally like in, you know, in opposition to each other. There was no sense of, oh, we're all white and we have kind of like a shared fate and fortune. But one of the things that this slave code introduced was um, to start to give these legal rights to Europeans, people who were racialized as white, and started to kind of cultivate this sense of shared identity. So somebody like, so 
it kind of, it, it prevented and, and to start to introduce this idea of, you know, this, this immutable difference between um, the in, indentured Irish and the, and the enslaved Africans. Whereas previously they would, they, they would have seen um, their conditions as, you know, comparable in yeah. ways. Um, it started to reinforce this idea of, no, you're, you're distinctly different. And actually for the Irish, you've got more in common with these other Europeans, even though they yeah. exploit you and they're like abusive to you. But you also have the opportunity to move up and to yeah. access what they have. And that happened for some <clears throat> for some of them, but obviously not for all of them. But it's kind of this carrot, like whiteness is this kind of carrot that yeah. is dangled. And you see that happening with kind of historical regularity. The next place that you see these slave codes introduced is in like, um, I think it's in, a, in a, oh gosh, where is it? In Maryland. Is it Maryland? Virginia. Sorry, it's Virginia. Um, and it's, again, these indentured English indentured English and enslaved Africans come together and like fight the colonial elite, mm -hmm. these rich English lawmakers and, and plantation owners. And then they introduce these slave codes. Again, they kind of see what happened in Barbados, how effective and successful that was. <laughs> and um, again, it, it kind of creates this distinct difference in like um, the law, but also in identity between yeah. these indentured English laborers and these enslaved Africans. And one of the kind of primary motivations in doing this is preventing those coalitions from emerging from emerging between them. And so in many ways, race was, the concept of the white race and the black race was introduced to prevent these class allegiances yeah. that were emerging, that were really threatening yeah. to the status quo. That's powerful. They're really threatening to, I guess, today it would be the 1%. Yeah. And so you still see the same process happening, like, time and time again. Yes. And kind of immigrants or just... Uh, marginalized or minoritized identity groups being scapegoated yeah. when the abuse of power is really coming from like, you know, like the 1%. I know. But people can be distracted from focusing their attention on that and they can be distracted by uh, thinking about like, um, yeah, migrants or refugees or black people or Muslims or, yeah. you know, whoever it is when actually like the source of um, the exploitation and oppression and inequality and poverty is actually coming from... All the same. Yeah. I know. Coming from the 1%. God, that's so true <coughs> and terrifying, actually, when you think of it. And actually, on, on the way here on the train, I was reading an article about wokeness and how that as a term as well stops people wanting to put their head above the parapet to question, to, because it's become a kind of an ugly term for anything that's trying to look outside of your own lane again, isn't it? It's like just the idea of kind of trying to join dots is like, oh, careful, are you are you actually doing something that's pretty uncool there? It's, it's a pretty toxic thing in, in total, isn't it? And it's terrifying that all those things we're talking about, the immigration, that's all... That's all present day. That's literally where we're at. Yeah, completely. <laughs> it's just like head in hands sort of stuff. And so I'm picturing, um, by the way, I think you're considering you told me just before we started, you've got a little tiny bit of a hangover. You're incredibly <laughs> eloquent. Oh, it's amazing. Thank <laughs> you. Amazing. Um, um, I'm thinking back to like us as teenagers. So you're in Dublin, I guess, in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. 
So what, at what stage were you at there with your quest for information, your sort of your go towards academia? Was that something that was always there as the kernel <clears throat> from the get-go? Uh, Well, I always read, like I was always like a really, like I was always reading a lot from like a really young age. Is that in your family too, your mum and your dad? Is it the same sort of thing? Um, Yeah, very much with my my dad. Um, But he, my parents separated when I was like eight. Um, So he wasn't necessarily like an immediate... um, influence in that way mm-hmm. but actually even when they when he left and went back to Nigeria all of his books were still in the house and a lot of them were he'd studied like um English literature um so there was just a lot of like Faulkner there was a lot of just like English actually like American literature was kind of what his what his preference was but he was also um really interested in like Cuba so like I remember like one of the first books he gave me was like a young person's like manifesto on like on like I don't know manifesto on like on Cuba so it was all like about Fidel Castro but it was like for children (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then I remember books like um there's a really classic book called um how Europe underdeveloped Africa um, by Walter Rodney and I wasn't like reading that when I was a small child but it was in my house so I just remember the spine said how Europe underdeveloped Africa you know so that yeah. this, these ideas are kind of uh, being being introduced to me but I feel like um, because I um, was, I was born in Ireland and then we moved to the States um, where I was in like a very black environment like with my Nigerian extended family in like a very black part of America as well um, and then we moved back to Ireland, which couldn't have been like more the anti like as as white as could. I kind of went from it being as black as it could be to it being as white as could be, um, like just really like quite starkly, extremely different. Um, and I never thought of, I never thought about race um, in the uh, American and Nigerian extended family context. Um, I only started thinking about race when I came back. Um, when I came back to Ireland and um, I guess I was kind of like looking for answers I guess as to try and like kind of make sense of why like what was happening to me was happening so I think through that I was like just reading like a lot of like black black history books and um when you say what was happening to you what do you mean by that do you mean you, yeah, so you it, feeling it was quite like, like a lot of like explicit quite explicit racism um like in those days this is like in the 80s um there was like very very little difference like in Ireland like even things like if you had an English surname like you'd really stand out like um it was just like 99.9 percent obviously like white but like also like Catholic and very very socially conservative like anything that was a little bit different was like a big deal (laughs) and often met with hostility and suspicion. So I was like more than like a little bit different. Like I was, I really, really stood out. And I feel that um, it was interesting because there was an absence of black people, but there was a presence of very stereotypical notions about black people that had just been, you know, imported from from other, from other parts of the world. And we're just really, um, you know, what's the word, like really prevalent in kind of mainstream and and, and popular culture. And also um, 
the fact that in Ireland, so I, I'm I'm really fascinated like by Irish by Irish history, and um, that the kind of like complexity and the paradox in Ireland, um, whereby it's the country that is uh, was colonized by Britain longer than anywhere else, like, it's like mm-hmm. 800 years, and it had that decimation of um, tradition and destruction of language. Um, and so much, so much of that, like just violence and an oppression of colonialism, um, and that Ireland shares with other colonized countries, and it has like the longest kind of history of it. But what distinguishes Ireland in comparison to the other colonized countries is Irish people came to be racialized as white people. So. There's this paradox of, of, of being having access to whiteness, but also coming from a culture that has been like brutally oppressed and a state that has been, you know, like colonized for, for centuries. Um, but I, I feel like in that relationship um, of Irish people being racialized as white, when you go back to the invention of race, whiteness and blackness exist or were created as the mirror um, kind of binary polars to each other. Mm -hmm. So if you have a context where people are racialized as white, even if there's not many black people in that context, Mm -hmm. there's still this, there's still this inherent sense of superiority that is, um, that, that is taught with being racialized yeah. as white. Do you know what I mean? So that yeah. was that was that was still present. So I was just trying to make sense of this um as a young child. Yeah. And I guess I kind of looked for the answers in books. So I read a lot of yeah, black history. Um but I also I also feel like and I read a lot of black fiction as well. And I always find it really interesting that um you know people talk about like representation like in books. I always was able to access lots of books mm. that had black protagonists for children. I've since found out, though, that one of the bookshops that I frequented regularly called Books Upstairs was actually like a really radical bookshop, <laughs> which I didn't realise when I was a child. So it had all of these books that were from small, like, kind of, like, radical presses, and it had, like, a lot of, like, um, like queer literature and, like, black literature and... Just all of this, um, it was just like a super, super progressive bookshop, but yeah. I didn't realise that. So I guess that's also how I found like lots of the books. And when I was really little, my mum had, my mum sold like vintage clothes and um, she, my younger siblings went to like nursery, but I, because I was older, I just um, would go with her and she, I just sit in the bookshop all day waiting for her to finish work. So mm-hmm. I feel like my education kind of came from there. So that answer was so rambling. <laughs> no, I love it. Cause actually I think that um, books can be a, a very quiet, but powerful rebellion. Cause they, it's almost like you read and you read and you read and you build and you build and you build all these other voices, all these other spaces you can go in your head and it's like under the radar. I think it's, yeah. Books are amazing like They're that. They're so amazing. And, um, I wonder what it was like for your mum, though, when you're experiencing that and, you know, the idea of raising a child that you can see is having negativity because of how they 
look or the mm-hmm. fact that they don't look the same as all the other kids at the playground. That must have been heartbreaking. Was she aware, maybe? I don't know. Um, yeah, she was She was aware. And um, she would... Um, there was a group that I was part of called Harmony, which was like... Um, it was like a group for like Irish people that like weren't, I guess that weren't white. <laughs> um, and there were some, there were, there were like a handful of like other people that I knew who had like, like, yeah, it was just, it was just so kind of like not diverse. But this group was like, I feel like anyone that had like kind of one not white parent, like probably like a black parent. I think there were probably maybe... I'm trying to think, was there even anybody who had like, maybe there was like one person that had like an Asian parent or something. There, there was not many of us, you know. Um, we, yeah, there was this group and I can't really remember. We'd kind of like do activities and stuff. <laughs> but um, it, it, yeah, it was still like an environment where if I like saw another, like if I saw another black person, I'd be like, wow, like, you know. <laughs> Um, it was like a big deal. It was like an event. Um, but she, yeah, she kind of, she made, she had, she was friends with like a few other women who also had like, you know, children whose dads were, I think most of their dads were like African. Um, so, and she'd also, um, she'd like take me to um, London to like get my hair done and stuff. Cause in those days there was just not hairdressers there and in the way that you can buy um products like online or you could watch like a youtube tutorial or whatever like that was just not there, there was not access to stuff like that um it's, so, it's like we grew up in such a different time it's such a different time when i try and explain to people i feel like like if you unless you had direct access to like knowledge and information yeah. and products they just didn't like, that was it like you know we had four tv channels you watched what was on at the time like, yeah like, yeah, it's just yeah, it's an, it's it's another world. It is. So I remember my mom taking me to like Tottenham to get my hair done, taking me to like Moss Side in Manchester to like get my hair done. I got like a Jerry curl because um, it was like the early nineties. Um, so yeah, she would kind of do. She would she would like make like an effort, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't really that much she could do. We were just in this environment that like was what it was, and I feel like I actually felt like quite a lot of anger towards my parents. Um, because I was just like, also because there were like so few non-white or black people there, I was just like, I'm like, how is it me? How have I been the person that's ended up having this experience? Like, this is like, it it felt like a unique form of punishment. And also we'd come from this environment that um, was... um, yeah, that was like a mostly black environment and with the exception of my mum, kind of my whole like social world had been black and I just hadn't had any of these experiences. And I was like, why didn't, like, why didn't we just stay there, you know, where I was like not subject to um, all the things that I experienced from like at a young age in Ireland. So I, I felt, I actually felt quite angry, yeah. I think, with, with my parents. Like in hindsight, I see that... Um, my mom, um, we kind of had, like, we were in America through my dad and he um, didn't want to stay there. So my mom kind of had to go back to Ireland. Like, do you mm. know what I mean? There was nowhere else that she, that, she could, that she could go, really. I mean, I guess we could have gone to Nigeria, but I don't even know if that was, like, an option then. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I used to feel as well like um, I 
wouldn't be able to like raise children in Ireland because um so like I like I love Ireland like really like a great deal um if you follow me probably like hear me like talking about Ireland like quite a lot and I love Irish culture I really miss Irish culture like living here um and yet at the same time um the reality of what I experienced like because of racism growing up I was like I just wouldn't subject my children to that like Mm. I just would just rather like not live there I now feel that like the country has changed the country has actually also changed like dramatically it really has it's changed to a point where I actually feel like I could live there with them and it would be grand um and I guess I'm, I'm saying this um maybe not as enthusiastically as I would have said a few months ago just because um there's been a few incidents recently where people have told me about um, mum, like a, basically pe- people who have children who are not white um, have told me stories that seem very, very similar to the kind of things I experienced growing up. And I have been like shocked and appalled to hear that, that is still happening. It's yeah, still happening to people. Um, and that has just I have to say like when I go back home with my kids like their presence in the spaces that we're in their presence doesn't provoke any kind of reaction Mm. in the way that mine did no one really gives them a second look so on the basis of that I and there's lots of different types of people you know kind of from all over the world um so on the basis of my experiences when I go home I feel like it would be fine but I have recently just had parents telling me about things that their children have experienced recently that give me pause, that give me pause for thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you feel like your boys are growing up in a very different, their childhood is very different to yours, full stop? Yeah, their childhood is hugely different to mine. Um, But like at the same time, like even though I was like quite angry with my parents for us leaving America and then bringing me to... um, to bringing me to this like super 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 white environment where I was seen as like an aberration um I'm still like I'm really glad that I grew up that I grew up in Ireland like that I'm that I'm Irish like I feel like my Irishness is kind of like um like an anchor or like it's just something that like I get a lot of like um Succor, is that the word? Succor, I don't know. Mm. But I um, think it's fascinating as well how quite often the things we really like mm, about when we're young end up becoming really defining. Yeah. And I'm thinking that, you know, when you find yourself <clears throat> an academic, like when, again, before we start recording and I said about my mum writing books and you were like, I always thought books were something you did when you're older, but obviously you've done it, you know, in your 30s and... You know, sometimes knowing what it feels like to be the one that's a sense of other actually can be a bit of a superpower mm-hmm. if you choose to take that on. And like, like I was thinking, there must be a lot of people if they sit down next to you somewhere and have no idea that you've got all this knowledge, all this powerful stuff. And I mean, have you ever had that where someone's having quite a just a chat with you and then you're actually able to be like, well, I really do know. <laughs> like, let me take you back through time. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, I think that must be like a, yeah, like a really cool kind of invisible weapon. Um, That's such a funny question because that, that, no, that actually does happen quite a lot. Like, I'll like sit next to somebody and we'll get like deep into things 
And they'll be like, afterwards, they'll be like, I just did not expect to have that conversation with you. I just did not expect that. <laughs> um, that happens, yeah, that happens. That happens frequently. Well, that's cool. And you've spoken as well, you know, I, I saw recently a post about, you know, femininity and, you know, being an intellectual who can still celebrate fashion and the way you look and all that stuff. And I think, yeah, there's just, I think all that stuff becomes really powerful. I think it's brilliant. Why should there be an expected path if you're going to be able to be, have serious discourse, you can also still appreciate aesthetic. Like, it's all... It's all there for the taking. I think yeah, it's all good. Yeah, no, I, I totally I totally agree. And I think things that are read as feminine are also read as um like silly and superficial and and shallow. Like I can be like quite giddy and I can be like quite giggly. And those things are often immediately read as like, well, you're kind of feminine and not like a, not a serious person. And I'm like, no, but I can be those things and also be like a serious person. And also in my books, like I try and use, well, I don't even try. I think this is just like how I express myself in the written word. Like I might say this, you be like, what the fuck are you talking about? They're not funny at all. But quite a few people have said to me, oh, I was surprised by like the humor in your books. They were like, there was a few times that I was like laughing and I was just like, shit, am I like meant to be laughing? Because <laughs> this is like actually like, uh, like quite... <laughs> quite disturbing material but like so I I do feel like he I feel that's that's another thing like um if you're dealing in ideas or like academia there's also kind of sometimes meant to be no personality or like no humor Mm -hmm. otherwise it's not serious and I think what some of the most powerful ways of actually conveying things that are serious is through utilizing utilizing humor 100% yeah I agree with that yeah Mm. So back to your boys. Um, what are your hopes for them and their, and their future? And that's a really big question. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's something you've clearly, you know, would have thought about a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, um, gosh, I honestly just want them to, like, be, like, to feel secure and to be, and to be happy with their lives. Um, obviously, happiness is not like a... Um, like a consistent emotion that one, you know, Mm. kind of always like that, that one always, that one always feels, but yeah, I would just want them to be like kind of contented and satisfied with their lives and to do like, I don't, I also don't care like what they do in terms of like their professions. Like it could be from, I don't know, like science to acting to sports. Like it just could be anything. Like I don't care. Um, just as long as like they are like they enjoy it and they feel satisfied with what they're doing and then for me to just be as supportive of um supportive of them whatever they do with their lives like as I can be mm-hmm. yeah that's that's it that's a wonderful thing that's a good thing <laughs> well I was thinking because like when you said about the books you would read when you were young and how it turned out it's a radical bookshop and I'm thinking now it's lovely that you've written your books that sit in high street shop bookshops like things ha- definitely have come on hugely that it's just not radical to talk about these things anymore is it and I think I mean do you think about the fact that there might be like a version like the you know a, a marginalized teenager who finds your <laughs> book and then that that becomes the thing that makes them feel like aha uh-huh, there's a way to deconstruct and then actually 
change things? Oh, yeah. Um, I, like without, not like blowing my own trumpet, but I've had, I have had countless people like message me and just be like, there's a part in the book where I talk about reading Franz Fanon, who's like this um, like post-colonial theorist um, who wrote these two kind of like seminal books in the 1960s called Black Skins, White Masks and the Wretched of the Earth. And I talk about like um, in my degree, like doing African studies and reading black skins, white masks, and just the sense of, like, relief I felt encountering, like, Fanon's work when I was, like, 19. Hmm. And then I had people being like, oh, when I was reading you talking about that, and I was thinking, well, that's what this book is, like, doing for me. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, like, quite, uh, that's quite, yeah. Like, I yeah. And I, I've also had, like, people in Ireland as well being like, oh, you know, reading about you saying you didn't really have... Uh, anyone that was similar to you that you could kind of look to mm-hmm. um, and then being like, well, I, but I have, like, I would have like that, but I have you. Um, not that I'm saying, like, I also, I just want to say, I'm never telling anybody what they should think. Like, I hate discourse and, like, there's so much of it in our current moment that doesn't encourage, like, critical thinking. It actually just encourages or demands... Um, it demands that you just kind of parrot a, a script. There are certain things you you have to think like me and you have to think like this or you're problematic. And I'm honestly never telling anybody what they should think. Mm. I would really just want to encourage like critical thinking yeah. so I can like kind of present ideas to people and they can really like give or take them. Do you know what I mean? I'm not like, if you don't think like me or believe what I say, then you're... Um, then you were toxic or you were like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not saying, I wouldn't see myself as a, I guess that's kind of different to being a role model. But yeah, I'm, I'm never telling people what they should think or what they should say. I'm just presenting them with maybe like alternative ways of thinking and alternative sets of information that they might not be easily, easily able to access elsewhere. Yeah, and no, I can see that. And, and in a personal way, when you said when you were growing up and you experienced racism, is that something that is still part of your life? Is that something that you still experience now? Um, like, definitely, definitely. But I feel like a lot of the narrative around racism, how we talk about what is and what isn't racism now, is very, but so I grew up just, you know, with like countless, countless like microaggressions, people would call them now. I wouldn't have used that vocabulary at all. I still don't really use that vocabulary, but just like for the sake of, uh, for the sake of uh, a succinct answer, let me hear that. So I just grew up with that just being the kind of pervasive, like kind of background. Um, But then also, you know, like certain, like certain treatment in, in school, I guess school was like the primary institution that was kind of like, um, that was uh, shaping my life as a child and a teenager. Um, very different treatment in school to my peers, um, which, you know, stemmed from um, my teacher's perceptions about black people. Um, but I just feel like so much of the bandwidth of our discourse around racism gets caught up um, in these very interpersonal exchanges, mm-hmm. which, you know, can have a, like a profoundly negative effect on, on one's life. Um, and I'm not by any means saying they're irrelevant. They're not at all. But I think we also, you hear people talk talk about, oh, structural racism, but then we don't really 
we don't really, I think, often engage with like what that, with kind of like state and institutional racism. And a lot of our focus is often on um, just those interpersonal exchanges. So I still have those. Yes. Like, yeah, I still have those to varying degrees in different places. Mm -hmm. Like things are different in Ireland to how they are in England, to how they are in the US. It also really frustrates me when we conflate how racism operates in those different English speaking parts of the world. Because I've lived in all of them and it is actually like very, very different. Um, But I think it's really important that we, um, we look at the way, um, race and class intersect and um like when when you are okay so I read this interview with um the people who grew up with George Floyd um you know whose murder it was that sparked this like current um movement and they were talking about for how black people um so George Floyd grew up in some I actually can't remember what part of America he's from, but he grew up in like a projects, like in a very, very, um, you know, underprivileged um, environment with very, very entrenched intergenerational poverty. Um, And I think it was one of the people he grew up with saying that like for all of this attention and all of this like focus for black people who live in who live in the area where he grew up like very little has actually changed so like our focus you know is so much on diversity and like casting diverse models and all of these things that are just quite like um don't actually transform society in the necessary ways that would um give people um that would give people whose backgrounds are like George Floyd um actually access to the opportunities and quality of life exactly that they deserve I feel like so much of the discourse just ends up being around actually there's this amazing book by um, a Nigerian American philosopher elite capture how the how the powerful how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else something like that but it's called elite capture is the main Mm -hmm. title and he's talking about um how the concerns of marginalized groups um what we've kind of seen happen is it is often he's talking about elites but he's not talking about traditional elites he's talking about the elites of marginalized groups mm-hmm. so people within marginalized groups who have relative power in their groups mm-hmm. and access and how they all often make the concerns that are seen as representing that group yeah. about things that um will be um beneficial to them personally as individuals but remember that they're people who while they exist in this marginalized group they are the elite, the elite. of that group yeah. so the concerns what the public sees as being the concerns of that group. Often we see this on social media all the time, do not represent that group. They represent the aspirations of the elite in that group. Now that makes total sense. So the actual like really entrenched 
structural, like yeah. poverty inequality is not ever really being tackled with, but maybe more superficial and shallow concerns are. And it's a very nuanced argument that he's yeah. making, but it's so important. I feel like everybody should read that book, Elite Capture. Yeah. That sounds, well, I guess as well, that goes back to your ideas of how actually it's a restructuring <clears throat> that's needed, not just because it's all very well and good to say for, you know, you know, a little girl growing up in a black community and she sees on the TV um, a black actress and that gives her, oh, that could be me. And, he's, you know, that's, that's, but, but actually you're, what you're looking for there is for a tiny, tiny percentage of people to have sort of somehow superseded mm-hmm. where they're at, gone, mm-hmm. gone above and beyond, be amazing mm-hmm. at acting, be amazing at sport, be, you know, or go to the next level. Yeah. Otherwise you don't move yeah. anywhere. Yeah, you're yeah, actually yeah. asking them to be superhuman yeah or stay unseen so it actually if you haven't got the bit mm. where you're actually giving day-to-day difference it's not really going to make any big big changes exactly and I feel those changes like are, are not are not happening all that's actually happening really is there's like a massive redistribution of wealth that is like increasing the power and wealth of the one of, exactly. of the one of the one percent. So I kind of think things are actually getting worse. And then we're also like hurtling towards um, the earth overheating to the point where it can't sustain life, which yeah. is all part of the same process of system of um, you know extraction and exploitation um, and the concerns of. Um, the concerns of like yeah like the ruling class who are just you know like so kind of myopic and short-termist and just about um amassing and hoarding as much wealth as they can in their kind of like immediate future um but through which they perpetuate systems that you know further racism and misogyny but also actually like are destroying the earth itself but it's all about kind of like short-term gain for them not making me feel cheery, Emma. <laughs> Within all of that, okay. So th- this, okay, no, but I have a solution. Okay, I have. Okay, a, there, 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 there is, there is a solution. Is it alcohol. <laughs> that's one of them. But again, that's a short termist. Um, no, the solution I truly believe is the cre- is the creation of like coalitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so people often think solidarity is like um, actually, or just trying to placate one group, or just being like real, like fucking like kumbaya let's all hold hands but like I actually think that is fully it's the opposite of that I think solidarity is more difficult to achieve and it's more subversive and so many structures have been put in place to prevent the emergence of solidarity because solidarity is really really threatening Mm. to the one percent to the status quo I just think it's like it's of crucial importance. I think the only way that we can create like mass movements that are powerful enough to transform the material conditions of society is through creating like coalitions mm. um, where, where most of the world can see that their lives would be improved by transforming things, even if their struggles are slightly different yeah. to those of their neighbours. The importance of like, yeah, cultivating solidarity and working together, creating yes. coalitions. No, that makes total sense and it does actually leave me with a modicum of optimism after <laughs> crushing, Sorry. crushing nature. I was like, <laughs> let me wheel that back. <laughs> okay, that's good to know there's something. <laughs> but I've only got one last question for you and it's just a practical one actually because I was thinking um, about your, I suppose what you'd call your day job with the 
Would you call your day your main job the writing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How do you do that with young children? I have like a room, a like, like room. A, no, it's not, it's far from soundproof. <laughs> I have an office it's at home. Got six bolts. And then my, 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 my <laughs> <laughs> it's a underground, underground bunker. Okay. Um, no, I have um, no. They're like they're in school and nursery, so I just like work during the day while they're there. Okay, yeah. cool. Because <laughs> I was writing a book once, not not a like a proper book because it was only a book about me which is like a lot easier to write I recommend that by the way you chose from sole topic me <laughs> but um, I would just go upstairs but I would have the door open and it's all during lockdown so they weren't out of the house it was quite challenging but um but if you're able to keep to those hours, I guess, so you're not someone who suddenly finds you need to write at like 6pm through to midnight. Oh, no, no, I totally am. And then like, I kind of like can't. So I just, <laughs> you yeah, just <laughs> yeah, I might try to, but yeah, no, it, it is, it is, it is quite difficult to balance. And the second book that I wrote, um, I wrote in lockdown in like, um, we lived in Hackney and we had like just an open plan, oh. um, like space, like, so I was just there, like with my kids because they were there too and my husband and we were just all there and it was like actually like I I do know how I wrote the book because people are like how did you write it in those circumstances because yeah. I can I can have like hyper focus where I'm just like you know mm-hmm. like in the thing um but yeah it was def it definitely wasn't the ideal like circumstances to no. be riding it and I hear about people like you know like kind of riding they like go to Bali on their own for like kind of like two months <laughs> even just a cafe just not to be Bali <laughs> <laughs> not like no. <laughs> I picture you like um, you know those thing where they speed it up but there's you on the laptop and around you there's like kids and people and things being moved and were you there? <laughs> that's what it was like <laughs> chaos <laughs> yeah well extra well done then <laughs> thank you <laughs> quite spicy they're spicy? hi I'm home Milking. Oh, J- Jesse just tried a packet of crisps that we brought back from Mexico. Are they spicy or not? No. Okay. Missy, just take that little bit spicy. Okay. No. Okay. Sorry, no. I've started recording this in the middle of, uh, well, just family time. But Richard needs to take his computer to go and get it fixed, so I've got to be quick talking to you. These are the things we think about. I've just got back from Cannes. When I did the intro, I was still there with the twinkling sea. I'm now... Actually, in my very sunny garden, God, it's gorgeous today. We thought we were going to have a really horrible flight home, but it actually turned out all right because... Sorry, I'm shutting your gate. There you go. Um, Because they had no passport gates working. The e-gates weren't working. But by the time we got to Heathrow, it was probably about half an hour. We'd been looking online and there were reports of it taking like three hours. Actually, in the end, it was all right. Hello, Jesse. what is it? I am coming. You are going. Okay, perfect. Um, Did I tell you on that note about last week when I was flying to Mexico and I ended up sleeping a night in Dallas airport? (laughs) You know, I'd always looked at people who were sleeping in airports and felt a bit sorry for them. And then at age 44, found myself... uh, if you're ever in Dallas Airport, D23, gate D23 has got some lie-down beds. Uh, I can't guarantee there won't be any construction work. Um, do you want me to open these, Mickey? These look spicy as well. No. We brought back crisps from Mexico and the kids have just found them in our bag. Churumize. Lemonjito. They look good. It's a pretty bag, isn't it? Anyway, how lovely was Emma? Sorry about the destruction. Open it. I will open it. Hold on. There you go. Um, not only I mean Emma has the most lovely accent by the way how nice was that in your ears for a little while 
But what I love about her, and I liked it when I said to her, you know, do you ever find you sit next to somebody or you meet somebody and then they're a bit wowed by all this information you have in your head and how far you've taken your academia with, you know, she really knows her stuff. And she was like, uh, yes, that does happen to me all the time. I thought, I bet. It's like a secret weapon, isn't it? Knowledge. Knowledge is power and all that. Anyway, I think I'm going to have to... Oh, these are spicy as well. Sorry, Dan. Do you want some milk? God, the children in Mexico must be able to cope with very spicy crisps. Not so the Jones boys. Anyway, thank you so much for this week. Sorry, it's a bit of a hush. I was supposed to be back hours ago. Everything went a bit wonky, but life is good. I'm back home. Oh, those are nice flowers. Some nice flowers for me on the side. Oh, pretty. Um... And I've got another festival this afternoon. I'm off to sing for Foodies Festival in Cyan Park. And then I actually just booked another podcast guest on the way home. I messaged someone and she said yes. More of that to follow. And we're not far off the 100th episode. That's exciting, isn't it? God, it's so noisy in here, so this must be horribly raised. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks to producer Claire, editor Richard, artwork by LMA, mostly you, being so lovely. And, of course, my beautiful guest, Emma Darby. See you next week. Bye-bye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.